and welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. My name is Mindy Jensen, and with me, as always, is my wearing his CEO hat today co-host, Scott Trench. Thanks, Mindy. Great to be here, and I always appreciate you bringing such a positive attitude. We're here to make financial independence less scary, less just for somebody else, to introduce you to every money story, because we truly believe financial freedom is attainable for everyone, no matter when or where you're starting. Scott, on today's episode, we are speaking with Jeremy Schneider from Personal Finance Club about how he was able to retire early at the age of 36. Yeah, we, we usually talk to W-2 income earners, um, and the traditional story is save up, spend less, you know, spend less, earn more, invest, create, um, and gradually move toward financial independence. But Jeremy's story of entrepreneurship is a story of attaining entrepreneurship all at once in one big moment and very different, very fun, very interesting look into the different dynamics of it. And I hope that you're, you know, as you listen to this episode, you're going to think about the parallel journey that happens from a W2 path versus a entrepreneurial one. So stay listening because we're going to dive deep into the sale of his company, the emotive experience around it, um, and peel back the onion, peel back the curtain into the process behind selling a business after a 10-year entrepreneurial journey. Today, we are talking with Jeremy Schneider from Personal Finance Club. Jeremy, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. I am so excited to talk to you today. Thank you. Hi, Mindy. Nice to see you guys. Jeremy, you're an unemployed bum at the age of 36. Let's talk about that. Uh, I mean, I was an unemployed bum at 36. Now I'm an unemployed bum at 43. Oh, okay. So let's talk about how you became unemployed at 36. Or as we like to say here, financially independent. Sure. I mean, you know, my story is I was offered a job at Microsoft as I was graduating college. I had a degree in computer science and I turned it down. And yeah, I know it was, um, you know, more money than I ever had seen in my life, of course, because I was like a broke college student and instead decided to start a company. I had no idea what I was doing. I literally was Googling how to start a company. I didn't even know, like, do you fill out a form? Do you just shout out your window that you're starting a company? I literally had no clue, like even the semantics of it, much less the difficult stuff like getting clients and growing revenue and things like that. Um, but you know, the first few years were rough. I think my first full year in business, I made $14,000, like top line revenue and then takeaway expenses. It's, it wasn't enough to even afford to eat. And so I was living on credit cards for a couple of years. Um, I racked up about $12,000 in credit card debt, living extremely frugally, like, you know, pinching pennies at the grocery store just to make ends meet. Um, but it started, you know, kept going better. Eventually I was able to pay off the credit card debt, start hiring people. I had a team of seven, uh, and then we I sold the company at the age of 34 for just over $5 million. Oh, okay. So that was a better bet. I was going to ask you, was there any time during that first year that you were like, wow, I should have gone and worked for Bill? I mean, constantly. You know, I, I think anyone who's an entrepreneur, if you, if you are and you don't know that everyone else feels this way, then I'll tell you right now. I think everyone who's an entrepreneur feels the emotional roller coaster, um, constant, um, what's it called? Imposter syndrome. Um, you know, it, it would, you know, there's definitely days and weeks and months where I just was like, all right, this is a massive mistake. I'm a failure. I'm bad at life. Uh, but then, you know, you, the phone rings and someone's, someone's interested and you start multiplying numbers together in your head. You're like, Ooh, wait a minute. I might be a billionaire here. Um, and then, you know, so it's, 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 it's both, but yeah, there's definitely times where I regretted going off on my own. So are are you comfortable sharing like revenue and profitability of the company um, as it grew and at the time of exit? Absolutely. I I think that there's too much like shame and secrecy around money. And so kind of one of my own personal 
traits is I just have super transparent. I like, I like, love sharing all this stuff. But yeah, we, we're a tech company. Strangely is actually in the, um, rental housing advertising space. Uh, I know on the bigger pockets forum, there's lots of mention of my company. The company is called Rentlinks, which is a, uh, apartment advertising syndication service where you can post an apartment for rent on one website and have it automatically syndicate to like 50 different websites. That said, um, I recently got an email that they're shutting it down now, eight years after they acquired it. Is that eight years? Yeah. So um, if you're hoping to use Rentlinks and listening to this, you're out of luck. Um, but that's what it was. Um, it was a it was a software company, and the year that the year that we sold, our top line revenue was just under a million dollars. About I think it was like nine hundred seventy five thousand dollars, and our our profit of that nine seventy five was about twenty five thousand. So we basically were spending all of our money. We'd never taken any funding. We were bootstrapped, and so we, you know, we were basically just you know hiring as as we could afford. So there's a there's a, a number that's really important when you talk about businesses and valuing them and understanding profitability, and it's called seller discretionary earnings, which includes the profit plus the pay of the uh, owner and operator of it. Could you could you share what maybe that number, what your estimate of that number be, would would be for for the final year? Very little. Because my um, my take home salary was thirty six thousand dollars a year. I was the lowest paid employee at my company, and so um, you know when you talk about that type of business valuation, it's generally not used in the tech world as much um, because we you know the acquiring company was more interested in growth potential and strategic advantage and the you know the value of the technology. They weren't really looking for a you know just a a business they could collect profits from, right? The $25,000 of profit plus my $36,000 salary, whatever that equals, $61,000 or something, not very much money. Well, the reason I'm asking is because I think what's so fascinating about your story is that, you know, a parallel universe, you go and join Microsoft, right? And you probably earn big bucks after 10 years. And, you know, I'm I'm just trying to like, I, I think that's kind of like one of the things I'd love to learn as we kind of dive into this journey is like, okay, how much farther ahead did you get from starting a company here? surely far ahead um, from it. And what was the experience like around that? Because I think that's what a lot of people, I, I think that's like the an, an interest that I, at least I have in, in stories like yours is just parallel world where you could have got that career at Microsoft, probably come out at this at 34 or 35 with two to $3 million in net worth, potentially if you'd invested and saved up, but not quite here. And I'm, I'm I don't know. What's your reaction to that that thesis? I mean, no, I've, I've done that thought experiment many times and, you know, you know, my, I think my initial offer back in 2003 was like $90,000 or something like that. But yeah, you project climbing the corporate ladder at Microsoft and RSU stock options, whatever it is. Um, there's so many unknowns. Like, would I have moved to Redmond and bought a million dollar house and, you know, started buying speedboats or something because I hated my life, you know? Or could <laughs> I have lived dramatically under my, below my means and saved 80% of my salary? And, um, you know, when I did the back napkin math, I, you know, I was better off starting my own company and selling it, but I also like I exited as a founder and sold it for millions of dollars. And so that's, you know, not typical, but also as a relatively small acquisition, as far as tech companies go, like $5 million, obviously a, a massive amount of money to me, but it's not like you know, a billion or something. Up next is a break. But when we're back, Jeremy will tell us about what he did with the millions of dollars he received from selling his company. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, 
we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Real estate investing is great, but for some, the tenant phone calls and clogged toilets aren't all that attractive. So how do you invest in real estate without getting your hands dirty? Invest for truly passive income with Pine Financial Group. Pine's mortgage fund offers an 8% preferred return and an attractive profit split, with 70% of profits going to the investors. You'll earn passive income by participating in lending to house flippers. And it's secure because senior lien holders, that's you, get paid first. Their rigorous underwriting process and the backing of the physical asset provide additional security in case of borrower default. Plus, by investing with Pine Financial Group, you contribute to the revitalization of communities by redirecting your funds from Wall Street to Main Street, supporting local economies and generating profits simultaneously. This investment is reserved for accredited investors, but if you are not accredited, Pine Financial has options for you too. Take control of your investments and secure a stable 8% annual return today. Visit pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets to learn more about the fund. That's pinefinancialgroup.com slash biggerpockets. And we're back. Before the break, we spoke to Jeremy about starting and selling his business and retiring at the age of 36. Next, we'll be hearing from Jeremy if early retirement is all it's cracked up to be. Um, well, so if you're in $61,000, I assume in the peak profitability year, were you able to accumulate and save money from a personal financial perspective during the time where you're building your company or what, what, what did that look like from a personal financial standpoint pre-exit? I always personally didn't really count the business's money towards my personal life. I was trying to do what everyone else was, like live below my means and invest. And so I was always the lowest paid employee at my company. I was, you know, using the company's revenue to hire employees to grow the business, not to basically enrich myself looking for a bigger exit one day. Um, and so, yeah, I took home $36,000 a year and I spent about 30 or 31,000 a year. And with the other 5,000 or so, I put it into a Roth IRA. I mean, you know, the first couple of years that that wasn't true. I was like living on a you know credit card. The third year I was basically break even and then kind of like years four through 12 or whatever. That's what I was doing. And so my net worth at the time at age 34, you know, 10 seconds before a wire hit my bank account was about $100,000 or so. Um, so I, I had no debt. I bought a Ford Explorer Sport for $3,000 in cash, a 99 Ford Explorer that I drove, um, you know, I, when I was when I was selling, negotiating this multi-million dollar acquisition, I was driving my 99 Ford Explorer that I was, you know, had been driving for the last six or seven years or whatever. Um, and yeah, and I was just trying to build wealth the old-fashioned way by living below my means and 
buying and holding, you know, index funds. Awesome. This is, this is so fascinating to me. So, okay. So we, we've built this business. We've sold it. We have a wire for 5 million bucks. Um, let's talk taxes here. How do taxes work on a the sale of a company in terms of setting somebody up for, um, you know, uh, financial freedom? So a few years, an important piece of information is a few years into the business, actually, my mom joined the company. She bought 30% of the company for what we called the book value, which is basically just replacing the cash in the checking account. And so she gave me $1,500 and got 30% of the company. And so the day we sold, my mom and I together owned 100% of the company, me 70%, she 30%. And we basically had a phantom stock deal with our five employees um, that they were going to pay a payday to. So my share was about $3 million. My mom's share was about $1.5 million. And then the other, you know, 500,000 was employees and then a little bit in uh, legal fees and stuff. So my 3 million bucks, I live in the great state of California, which doesn't uh, distinguish between income and capital gains tax, which frankly, I think politically is the right thing to do. But when it affects you poorly, it's not so great. Um, and so I, you know, I wrote a big honking check to the government about 300, about a million bucks that year. So 300 some thousand to state of California and 600, 600,000 some to California or to the federal government. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and these numbers are just like mind boggling to you, they were to me too. I literally, you know, I was a week earlier, I was pacing the halls of the, or the aisles of the grocery store trying to, you know, look for something that's 10% less money, you know? Um, But then, yeah, on that day I wrote a, like a $650,000 check to the federal government and mailed it in literally a check and I mailed it in. And then they wrote me a letter back, a very sternly worded letter that said, what are you doing? You can't send us a check this big. Like you have to like go through the, you know, the EFTPS system. You have to send it electronically, yada, yada, yada. And they're like, we cashed it, but you know, next time. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I didn't know. I, I, I'd always just written a check. That's why I thought you're like, you're the government. You deal with checks. So I thought, so yeah, they, they cashed the check by the way, but they, they weren't, they were still sending me a sternly worded letter. People who send me checks for $600,000 do not get a sternly worded letter from me. I will say thank you. Exactly. Try it, Jeremy. Send me a check for $600,000. I'll send you a big thank you. And, and Jeremy, I just want to I want to call out here how special it is you're, that you're answering all these questions that are so blunt, so direct, and so big, and with such a massive financial situation. This is going to help a lot of people, and I think open a window into the realities of this world. I, you know, one of my reactions, maybe other people listening are feeling the same thing, is, oh, you sold a company for five million dollars and you walked away with two million dollars. That's actually way less than I would have anticipated uh, in there. And there's there's like a whole bunch of things. It's a huge outcome. It's awesome with all that. But there's like so many things that are, I think are running through people's minds that are transitioning about entrepreneurship because of your story. And I think you're the real, you're the real deal with what, what an entrepreneur goes through um, and, and a huge success story in this. And I think there's tons of misconceptions around this. One of those that I think you just highlighted that I really like to dive into is the day before close, I'm look, or the week before, I'm looking at the grocery store and trying to save 10 cents on a can of beans uh, uh, over here. Um, what was the process like to uh, uh, sell the company. How long did that take? And what was your kind of mindset in the weeks leading up to, you know, going from hundred thousand in 10 years to millions of dollars in the bank? What was that like emotively? Well, Scott, I would like to actually compliment you because very few people ask me these questions and I, I love talking about it. And I think that just, there's so much 
you know, secrecy around money for whatever reason, people are afraid to even ask the questions. And I, I love talking about just for the exact reason you said, everyone has this like, you know, whatever they saw on TV or in pulp culture, the ideas of like what some companies like are private jets and champagne. And like, you know, that's, that's not real. That's like, like Instagram fiction or whatever. And so, um, I love that you're asking pointed questions and someone listening to this might be able to like hear one real true experience. Um, yeah, I mean, it started with a negotiation. We, I drove up to their office in Santa Barbara. We sold to a company called Appfolio, which I'm sure you guys have heard of is a property management software company um, who's doing extremely well these days. Um, and on the agenda was, a, you know, they're basically introduced me to all the like, you know, different departments at their company. And then at the end of the day, they had this agenda item, which is negotiate uh, sale of the company and or negotiate price. And I'd gotten advice from other people. I'd like called a few friends who I knew who had been through something like this. And they said, don't negotiate in person, have a business broker. I, I chose to ignore that advice and negotiate in person because I thought that these people were operating in good um, faith. And I still think so. Um, you know, to make it a kind of a longer story, kind of short, he put up a PowerPoint on the screen that basically was going through what they liked and didn't like about our company, trying to lower our expectations, I think. And when I say ours, like me and my mom and the CEO of the company in a conference room. And then on the screen, he basically said, we were prepared to offer you $3 million. And, you know, we, when we drove up to Santa Barbara, we basically had a dis discussion, like what's our number. And we decided 2 million was our number, like any, a dollar less, one nine 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 nine. We would walk away and be happy, but like six million was like the number that we thought would be like a a good price. We'd be really happy with, and you know, offers weren't exactly flowing in. And like I said, I was I was pretty broken, so even turning down one nine 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 seems kind of crazy. But you know, we basically in the next five minutes we went back and forth and landed on five million. And I was like, all right. Um, and then what what came after that was. Um, I think almost four months of due diligence that was like in November and the, and the, the deal didn't close until April 1st of 2015. And they, you know, they pushed it off for some like accounting financial reasons or whatever. Um, but during that time I was like kind of losing sleep. Like literally I was like, you know, cause we were basically now preparing to be sold, you know, putting the company on hold, you know, we're still doing business, but like, you know, certainly my focus and my team's focus was on selling the company. And if it fell through, you know, we would have spent a lot of money on on lawyers and, um, you know, it would be rough. So I was losing sleep. Uh, but then one day, you know, <laughs> you know, we had, there's a Excel sheet, like an .xls file that had everyone's name on it and like their bank account numbers. And like, you know, Jeremy, 3 million, Amanda, my mom, 1.5 million, um, each of our employees, like 150,000 or whatever they were getting each. And then like our law firm. And that was like the wire, you know, there's all, there's a million legal documents. So, like, this is the one that like, <laughs> that like mattered to me. Like, this is where the money's going to actually go. And so then like on that day, I actually have a video, um, of myself videoing my checking account and clicking refresh because I had learned, cause I had done a wire like a, like a week earlier to like clear some of the cash out of the account. Cause there's supposed to be a cash free deal. Um, and so I learned they send you an email when you get a wire. And so I, so I, I knew I was gonna get this email. So like in anticipation, I opened up my bank account, like around the hour they're supposed to do it and just had the screen up waiting for that email. The email came through. I started the video camera. I literally clicked refresh. And so I have the moment where, uh, and I've actually shared it. It's public at this point where it went from like a hundred thousand, my lifetime net worth with that Roth IRA 
to like 2.1 million. So what did you do with that $2 million? You had, it was 3 million because you had the taxes or whatever. Um, and then did you invest any of that? Did you, you were, were you working for the company? Like, did you have the, the, you have to stay on for a year afterwards kind of clause in the contract? Yeah, not not all 3 million came to me on that day. I think more but like 2 million did and then or maybe 2 point something and then you know, I say point something like I'm, you know, whatever, a few hundred thousand dollars between friends, right? Um, and then I think there was like an $800,000 retention bonus that came six months later um, that, they, that they were also trying to do for accounting reasons, trying to move some of the expense to a different quarter or whatever. Um, other than that retention bonus, I had no employment contract. Usually with small businesses like mine that get acquired, they basically require that the founder stay on or the key the key executives or whatever stay on for usually three years is pretty typical from my understanding. With me, I think they didn't, you know, they had a previous acquisition. <laughs> this is kind of getting into like not my transparency, but their transparency, but they thought they would better lead with a carrot than a stick basically based on a bad experience, I think. And so they're like, if he wants to leave, let him leave. Otherwise, we'll just, you know, treat him well and as long as he wants to be there. And so I ended up working for the company for two more years and then left on really good terms. Still, you know, still love Appfolio. Like, you know, really appreciate that they gave us a bunch of money. My brother now, eight years later, my brother was used to work for me. He was an engineer, software engineer, worked for me. He still works for, uh, for Appfolio as well as like probably like my two best employees. So like Appfolio has still treated my team really well. Um, and then, yeah, with my money, I spent that, that interim period where I, we had shaken hands on this $5 million number, but the wire hadn't come through yet. You, you know, you were paying yourself $36,000 a year pre-acquisition. Did that base salary, uh, continue post-acquisition? It did not continue. Actually, I got a really healthy raise. I think my post salary, my post-acquisition salary was 150,000. So, you know, like it wasn't like giving me half a million dollars, but definitely it was like, it was crazy money to me, like like ignoring the $2 million in my bank account now, um, like the paychecks I was getting every two weeks were wild. Like I, I wasn't spending, I was spending like a quarter of them or something, you know? So that that's the next piece. You, you, you go from having a hundred thousand and, you know, a $3,000 car and, you know, all, all this stuff. And now you all of a sudden you have a huge pile of money in the bank. What, what do you do spending, spending wise? Do you, do you immediately buy a house? Like how, how does that work? What's the, the thought process and how did you, what did you end up doing? Yeah. To answer Mindy's question that I didn't quite get to is like, did I invest any of it during that due diligence period where I knew that we had shaken hands on the purchase price, but we hadn't yet gotten the wire. Um, I basically was doing all these thought experiments about what I was going to like do with the money, how I was going to spend it. I was like, should I go buy a Lamborghini or something? And then I was like, where would I park it? I would look like a bag driving around in a Lamborghini. It would feel so stupid. It's like so inauthentic, uh, so inauthentic to me. And so I kind of like got out. I some of the spend, like the itch to spend it, kind of got out of my system. Um, but I also was reading about investing. I started reading every book on like personal finance and investing I could find. And I realized like, oh, all these books actually say the same thing. It's all pretty simple. It's like, you know, spend less than you make, invest early and often, buy an old index funds, minimize fees. And so, yeah, you know, like, you know, a couple of days after the acquisition, I sat down at my Fidelity account and I bought $2 million worth of index funds, like on a single day, you know, it was uh, another very wild experience where um, I, you know, I was like trying to save 10 cents at a grocery store a week ago. And now I'm clicking bought purchase on like a million dollars worth of total stock market index fund. Um, 
And to this day, I've held it. And you know, like, spoiler, like my net worth at that moment was like two million or so. And today, I just actually this this past month with our nice stock stock market lately just crossed five million. And so, broad strokes, that's been my financial journey since then. Is I've just basically held those index funds, and now I have five million. That's unbelievable. So, like you 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 literally just put you did exactly what is supposed to what what you're supposed to do, right? What all the math says you're supposed to do, and you just did it and didn't even sounds like think twice about it. Didn't touch it for ten years, like. I wonder how many entrepreneurs actually follow through with doing following the textbook there. And you've been really well rewarded from that. That's it's like, it's remarkable. Um, despite that, despite that, that's like, Oh yeah, that's technically what should happen. So congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. There's a few more mistakes in there. Like for sure that the lion's share of my money, that's true. But I also made a few more mistakes in there, but I definitely have avoided the pitfalls of like burning all my money or, making really big dangerous gambles or timing the market or, you know, changing strategies, things like that. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. netsuite.com slash bpmoney. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. 
So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. What if I told you that I, Mindy Jensen, the queen of budgeting, the personal finance fanatic, sometimes forgot to cancel my subscriptions? I know, it's horrible. $10 here, $15 there. My useless subscription bills could have taken my whole family out to dinner multiple times. Rocket Money can make all that subscription sadness suddenly vanish. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. You can see all your subscriptions in one place and cancel money-sucking subscriptions with a tap. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. That's rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. rocketmoney.com slash bpmoney. Saving for a down payment, a wedding, or just looking for extra money to invest? Monarch Money turns your budgeting woes into wins. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best budgeting app overall. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it easy to manage your money like a pro. Add a partner or family member to your account for no extra cost, so combined finances become a breeze. Customize your budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions, and more. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash pockets. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash pockets for your extended 30-day free trial. So we, we, we kind of previewed the, the conversation here by calling you an unemployed bum. Um, when, when do we get to unemployed bum and, and what happens from, from there? Well, now he's working there for two years. I want to, before we go to there, I want to know about the dollar cost averaging that he didn't do, it sounds like, when he bought $2 million worth of index funds because the internet, uh, the financial, the personal finance community says that you need to dollar cost average and you just dumped all 2 million into the index funds. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that. That's a great question. Like, I, I don't think mentally I could have handled what you just, what you did, even though it's the right thing to do. That's why I'm like, I'm like in awe of, of how you handled everything. No, I literally, I think, I mean, you know, now we haven't really gone to, but now I basically do my, my, uh, my passion project, which is teaching people about personal finance and investing. And I post all stuff very transparently. And I like found my receipts. I was like, yep, there it is. There's like a million dollars worth of index fund purchases in a day, you know, 2 million a day or whatever it was. It's because there's a few different ETFs I bought. Um, you know, the answer is now knowing what I know now, dollar cost averaging or lump sum, they're pretty close. Statistically, lump sum is better. 70% of the time, you're more likely putting the money in as soon as you get it because the market's usually going up. That's what I read at the time, and um, I am a computer programmer and a math guy, and I understand you know numbers decently well, and and I just 
and I just did it, you know, because um, I, like you said, Scott, I just think it's the it's the mathematical correct thing to do, and so that's what I did. But admittedly, now talking to like a zillion people about personal finance, like that's not necessarily right for everyone, you know. I think there's a calmness to dollar cost averaging where if you do put in your two million and then the market drops thirty percent the next day, you know, you don't have to spend the rest of your life asking, oh, uh, you know, what how much money did I waste there? If you were just putting in, you know. 10% a month for 10 months or something or whatever it is, you'd have a little bit more peace about that, I think. Yeah. And I'll just chime in dollar cost averaging is the concept of if, you know, instead of Jeremy putting $2 million in a lump sum, it would have been him putting in, let's call it 50 grand a month for, you know, two or three years into the market to make sure, you know, and, and the reason someone might do that is because they're terrified of putting all the money in at the top of the market and having it go down at that point, that would defray that risk. Statistically, it's better to put it all in at once. But the dollar cost averaging might help people who come into situations like what Jeremy came into, maybe sleep a little bit better at night about the, the approach they're taking. Well, I think the dollar cost averaging in this specific situation, if he's putting $50,000 in every month for two years, he's not putting his money in the stock market, the whole thing, for two years. What if you have two years of growth? What is that statement? More money has been lost by people trying to time the market than by people who have been in the market and it's going up and down? Yeah, I, I, I think he did exactly the right thing. I just think, I, I just think, you know, you're like, hey, that's what's supposed to happen. That's what he did. It's 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 like it's so simple, it's so obvious, but it's so also probably so rare. And not only Jeremy, are you correct to do it, but Michael Kitsis said that you should do it like that as well. Lump Summit all the way in there, episode one twenty. You can hear Michael say this because he's so smart too. I've actually since built a dollar cost averaging calculator, looking at every single month of the stock market going back to like as early as S and P five hundred data goes back in like the late eighteen hundreds, and saying. You know, what would be the difference if you did it over 12 months or 24 months or whatever? And and basically, the end result is if you dollar cost average, all you're really doing is instead of getting today's price of the market, you're getting the average price of the market over that period of time. And generally, the market goes up. So if you take the average price from now until two years from now, it's going to be generally higher than the average price or than the price from today. And you're not, you know, you're not kind of doing anything magical about like, you know, really buying low and selling high or anything like that. You're just getting the average price. So I'm like, well, I guess I'd rather have today's price than two years from our price. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, how you became an unemployed bum. You leave the company at good terms. What, uh, what, what, what happens at that point? Do you just stop work and, you know, beach bum, um, you know, at that point, what, what, what is the day to day like when we hit? Essentially, yes. I put in my, you know, I, my net worth over those two years had grown to, I think, around $3 million. Just There's a couple of good years, the stock market plus my salary and all that. Um, and I you know, was realizing that while my, the growth of my investments is making more than my salary, um, why do I need to be working anymore? And I think, I think if you'd asked me back then, I didn't even know what FIRE was, like financial independence, retire early. I was just more like back of the napkinning my own situation. Um, so after two years, I put in my put on my notice, and I you know I didn't, I didn't like hate the job or anything, but I was like I can probably do better at something else, and someone else can better you know because I was no longer an entrepreneur; I was just like a middle manager at this company. Um, you know, someone else can take over my job, and so yeah, I quit my quit my job, and then I think three days later, I was on a plane to Venice, and I coached beach volleyball in Italy for two months because there's just like uh, beach volley. I'm a beach volleyball player, and there's just like this beach volleyball camp out there in ports, Southern California, beach volleyball players. And I've had friends who've done this. And I'm like, well, I can never do that because I like, I'm 
building a company and don't have two months to go be a beach bum. Um, but then I literally did. So I went to Italy and then I went to um, Australia for a month and a half. Bored one day at home when I came back, I saw an advertisement for StarCraft II and how it was now free and it used to be 50 bucks. And even though I had $3 million in the bank, I was like, oh, I can save 50 bucks. And so I, I installed StarCraft II and I got hopelessly addicted and played video games for a year, just StarCraft II. Um, and I basically just did what I thought you were supposed to do, like be on vacation, work out, travel, play video games every day is a weekend. And, you know, for sure, that's fun for a while. There's like, there's definitely like... You're 34 at this time? I was 36 now. I sold the company at 34, retired at 36 or became unemployed at 36, however, whatever you want to call it. My unemployment bump period basically lasted about a year. Um, and yeah, I yeah is traveling. I, I went to Mexico, you know, where there was like, you know, in, in a camper van with like no services. I was... I don't know, just trying to be a bodybuilder and, you know, eat protein and work out twice a day. Just, you know, like all the stuff that like you just suddenly have time for. But, you know, after a year of that, I, I don't know, it got boring and I didn't really want my life story to be, um, you know, I had a big win when I was 34 and then I was like a waste of life for the next, you know, 50 years or whatever. Um, and my own, my own, my own, like, enjoyment of life, I think was less because there was no goal. I, I think a lot of goal or a lot of joy in life comes from working, you know, making progress towards something, working towards a goal, building something. I, I personally like building things. Um, and so, yeah, they say the reward for financial independence is an existential crisis. The book Die With Zero makes some good points, which is you know, the goal of money isn't to be 80 and have the most money in your bank account as you roll into the grave. It's to, you know, maximize your life value. And so um, for sure, at 36, I was still pretty young. But, you know, I kind of tried to do the backpack around, you know, hostels thing. And like, I felt pretty old for that, to be honest, you know, and so I, um, you know, even though I had a big win relatively young, I think we all need to be remembering to jump on these temporal opportunities to, you know, live life to the fullest when it happens. Because if you want to go skydiving, this is probably the year because it's probably not going to be when you're 80, right? Um, so even though I had a young win, I still think, you know, living your life in your 20s and 30s, that's a good idea. Well, Jeremy, can you tell us where people can find out more about you? Um, my Instagram is where I do most of my personal finance education at personal finance club. Thank you so much for sharing your story. This was truly fascinating, uh, wonderful, you, you know, unique, but, but not, you know, not, not like probably there's a lot of entrepreneurs who have gone through, um, what you've done, even though it's a, a smaller percentage of the, the population and it's a wonderful glimpse into another way to achieve financial independence. Thank you for sharing the ins and outs so transparently. Um, and, and, uh, uh, the beach bum days too. Uh, you know, I, I, how, how good you get in Starcraft by the way? Uh, I think I was like low platinum. Like, yeah, you know, I was, I was like any 12 year old in, in South Korea would annihilate me. Um, but you know, I could probably hang with the other 37 year olds or whatever. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Really appreciate it. And hope to, to chat again soon. Thanks so much guys. This was a blast. Scott, that was so much fun listening to Jeremy really dive deep into how you sell a company that you own. That was really fascinating. And I loved your take on how I loved your questions that you were asking him because you've got this business mind that I just don't have. And that was really a lot of fun to hear Jeremy share those stories. Yeah. It, it's, you know, as a, as a CEO who, who has, 
you know, been through various investments with, with bigger pockets, uh, for example, I've had a glimpse into this, into this window. I've never been the entrepreneur who founded a business, of course, with that, but it's just fascinating to get a peek into what it's like on the other side, right? Like, uh, you know, from an, I'm a W2 guy, you're, you know, you've worked a long career, Carl worked a long career. It's, it's different, right? It's, it's not what you expected. It's not like the riches pile up overnight and he's earning hundreds of thousands of dollars. He earned very little, right? Almost basically maybe below a living wage for what people would consider maybe in California for many of those years. And then at a huge pile right at the end of the rainbow, but not quite as big as the whole valuation of his business after taxes, you know, were, were there. And so it's just, it's just so fascinating to get an insight into that huge outcome for him, of course, but maybe not quite as big as you would think for, from an entrepreneurial, uh, when you're look at, on the outside, looking in at an entrepreneurial journey and think about a $5 million business sale. Yep. That was quite eye-opening, and I was so thankful that he was able to share it. Sometimes there's uh, non-disclosure clauses attached to these sales, and sometimes the entrepreneur just doesn't want to share. So I was really thankful for Jeremy to uh, be open with us. That was a lot of fun. Rare treat to get an insight into into this world here. Should we get out of here, Scott? Yeah. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, it sounds like Jeremy you know, probably should have moved out of California for a few weeks. Um, <laughs> At that point, <laughs> just kidding. Follow the laws and wherever you're living when you go through all these things. Uh, yeah. But yeah, let's get out of here with that. That wraps up this episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. He is Scott Trench and I am Mindy Jensen shouting out the Morro Bay Skateboard Museum by saying later, skater. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five star review on Spotify or Apple. And if you're looking for even more money content, feel free to visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash biggerpocketsmoney. Bigger Pockets Money was created by Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. Lastly, a big thank you to the Bigger Pockets team for making this show possible. reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the bigger pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.